0: So if you weren't here at the beginning of the service, I, I so appreciated Maureen. I love it when Maureen leads. I love it when every one of our leaders lead when it comes to worship. But I appreciate how Maureen placed before you a vision. I don't know if you heard it. I don't know if you were here to hear it. I pray that you would be here when the service starts, please. Because the service is so well thought out and so prayed over and so steeped. In reflection upon God's word. But Maureen, at the very beginning, she said, It's been my prayer. And she said, And we and I have been praying for you that you would know the love of God today. That you would know the love of God today. And I know through worship already, and also through our giving moment that we have once a month, as Pastor Sam has shared it, I know that you sense and feel the love of God. And, and I just pray that, that you would internalize that. And, and above all, after you're having, your, you're having been here today, that you would feel the love of God and that you would sense it and then share that with the world that is around you. I pray that. So I'm going to preach. That wasn't the sermon, by the way. That was an encouragement. But I've got a message for you, and it's our final message in the James series. And uh, it's almost it's sad because we've all enjoyed the book of James so much. We've got a great series coming up in the month of March, leading into Easter, Encounters with Christ, and it's going to be very dynamic. And uh, we've got a few guest speakers coming in throughout the month of March. It's going to be wonderful. But today, we're going to close out James, and we're going to be talking about prayer. So let's read the text in James chapter 5, and, and let's just see what God will do in our hearts today. Is anyone among you in trouble? Is there anyone here that is distressed? Having a hard time? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is any among you sick? Not well. Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you would be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And then James gives an example. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced crops. The power of a human being given to prayer. James closes it out and he says, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So may God bless the word as you've heard it this morning. So, verse 16 is a key verse in the text and in the sermon today it says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And the word prayer is mentioned seven times in this text. The text is about prayer. And that's what it's about, prayer. James has a reputation, by the way, of being a person of prayer. In fact, his nickname was James the Camel Knees because he had such big knots on his knees from spending hours and hours in prayer. Eusebius, the fourth century historian, says of James, the brother of Jesus, he says, and he was in the habit of entering alone into the temple and was frequently found on his knees begging for the forgiveness of people so that his knees became hard, like those of a camel, in consequence of his constantly bending them in his worship of God and asking forgiveness for the people. There's tremendous power in prayer. Prayer is the greatest privilege of the Christian life. Being able to communicate with and talk to God. What prayer can do is what God can do. Anything that God can do, prayer can bring it about. And Jesus said, the things that I do, you'll do even greater if you ask. So how do you do greater works than Jesus himself? Jesus said in the verse underneath that, he says, it's by prayer. It's by prayer that we do great things in the name of God. And anything you ask, you pray for, it's our greatest responsibility to do the asking and to do the praying. It's probably our greatest failure in the Christian life as well. Because we don't give ourselves to prayer even as we should. But today is an exhortation and an encouragement to be a person of prayer. And so I want to answer a couple of questions, and I'm I'm going to look at when should you and I pray? And then I'm going to look at what kind of person can pray? And then we're going to look at how can I pray more effectively? So first of all, when should we pray? Well, first off, we are to pray when we are emotionally hurting. When we're going through a difficult time. In verse 13, James says, is any one of you in trouble? Is any one of you in trouble? And then he says, you should pray. You should pray. The word in the Greek literally means, trouble means misfortune it means to be in distress. It's an emotional outworking of an external reality. He's talking about internal distress caused by external circumstances. It may be financial, it might be relational, but it's something on the outside that your heart is affected by and you are experiencing distress and tension. It's when life gets hard. And David in Psalm 18:4 says, In my distress I call out to the Lord. David is consistent with what James is saying. Are you having a hard time? You should pray. You should pray. When you're under tension, that's when you're, you're tempted to do something other than prayer. In verse 12, above verse 13, the text that we're looking at, it says, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear. Do not swear. I have to be honest with you, my vocabulary changes a little bit when I'm under distress. I might say a word that I wouldn't otherwise say. The distress sometimes brings about an expression that is dissimilar to to who I really am and what I really believe. And James says, listen, when you are under distress, don't swear, but rather pray. Pray. You can pray about your problems, your financial conditions, whatever it is that's creating stress in your life. Right underneath that, he says, is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Have you noticed that Life is a series of alternations between high and low, feast and famine, problems and joy. The Bible says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. It's a rhythm in life. Don't be surprised when you suffer, but don't be negating when you should be celebrating. These are the rhythms of life, and God is saying, enter into them. Experience both the highs and the lows. Praise when you're high, pray when you're low. But more than anything, communicate with God as you are experiencing the rhythms of life. It's not uncommon for someone to come to our church, a first-time visitor, and come out of the bridge saying, The joy is contagious at this church. You can sense it, you can feel it. And I think Christians ought to have a contagious joy. There's a verse in the Bible that says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go unto the house of the Lord. Not a house where people are bummed out or tense or intense, but a place where there is joy, a place where there is singing, Praise is used 550 times in the Bible. James says it's valid to be happy. It's okay to be filled with joy. It's all right to celebrate the goodness of God. But we are in the rhythms of life. And so we see already in the text where James says, look, If you are distressed emotionally, you can pray. If you are happy, you can praise. So we see this. And then, when I am hurting physically, I ought to pray. So first, when should I pray? When I am hurting emotionally. Second, when I am hurting physically, I ought to pray. In verses 14 and 15 of our text, he says, Is any one of you sick? he or she should call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up and if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. The word sick in the Greek literally means without strength. You are totally fatigued. Even possibly bedridden, unable to be productive and engaged in life as you normally would. You don't just have acid indigestion or post-nasal drip. This person that James is talking about is without strength. They're not able to rise to the occasion called life. You might even refer to it as a depression. It's the same word that was used to describe the condition and the position of Lazarus. When Lazarus got sick, he died. And then the same word was used to describe Dorcas, and she died. And the same word that describes the man at the pool of Bethesda, who sat there for years and years and didn't have the energy to get up and move away from the pool. He's talking about a serious illness the inability to engage in what is life. And the elders of the church are to come to such a person and to pray over them and to anoint them with oil. Now the scripture teaches that there are three kinds of sickness. There's a lot of teaching going on today about sickness and I wanna talk to you a little bit about this this morning and I wanna talk to you about healing. I wanna talk to you about healing. So the Bible says, first of all, that there is a sickness unto death. It's covered in 1 John 5.16 and 1 John John 11.4. That's the kind of sickness that God allows to take us home to our residence in heaven. There is a sickness unto death. There are some sicknesses that you do not recover from. There will be an illness someday that you and I will not recover from and we will actually move to our real home, which is in heaven. And then there is a sickness unto discipline. The purpose for a sickness for discipline is covered in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we see the Lord's Supper being referred to, where they were literally abusing the meaning of the Lord's Supper. In fact, chapter 11 tells the story about a people who were eating of the emblems that were symbolic of none other than the heart and spirit of Jesus, and yet they were doing things that were inconsistent with the heart and spirit of Jesus. In other words, they were were feigning faith, but they were living out of a sinful position in their hearts. They were selfish. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10 is about selfishness. And it's about people feigning faith, feigning Christianity, saying that they believe, but literally living something entirely different. And and what is told to us by the Apostle Paul is that People who do this live in contradiction, misaligned with the very God that they profess, and it will bring about a sickness in their life. It will bring about, that inconsistency will bring about a stress, will bring about an unhealthiness, and will break the fiber of their life and their intention down to the degree where they could be considered sick. So there is a sickness for discipline. And then there is a sickness for the glory of God. And the sickness for the glory of God is a sickness that God has allowed in your life simply because he wants to heal you and it becomes a vivid part of your testimony, your story. It becomes a vivid picture to the world around you that God is engaged in our lives and he wills to save us from the things that beset us. He wants to heal you. John eleven four. 4, a man came to Jesus who was ill and blind, and the disciples said, Lord, who has sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, well, in this case, nobody has sinned. This is a sickness for the glory of God. In other words, God's power, his healing power is about to be manifested, and people will gain a sense as to who God is coming out of this person's healing. So, there are approximately five different attitudes towards healing, and I just want to go through them. I want to talk to you about healing, which is the balm or the solution for the sicknesses that we experience. There is the sensationalist attitude towards healing, and these are the guys that you see on TV. They come into town, they hold giant meetings in large auditoriums, they advertise miracles. Bright lights, TV cameras rolling. Often the healer is a flamboyant individual. He shouts at the people. He slaps them on the head. And it's often highly charged and in an emotional atmosphere. And the guy might say something like, do you feel the warmth? And you're standing before 20,000 people. TV cameras are rolling, spotlights. Of course you feel the warmth. There is psychological motivation in all of this, so we need to be careful of it. We need to be discerning. To be honest with you, I don't see James doing this. I don't see Jesus doing this. I don't see the disciples doing this kind of stuff. Jesus never manipulated people and never used them for show. Never. He always cared about their needs more than he did about making impressions to crowds. And he healed people quietly. Then there's the confessionalists. So there's the sensationalists when it comes to healing. And then there's the confessionalists. And the confessionalist says that it's always God's will to heal everyone. And this is the name it and the claim it crowd. Sickness is a result of sin. And all you need to do is, is to claim your healing and God will heal you. And if you're not healed, then you lack faith. It's on you. The result of that is that there's no healing and there's an incredible amount of guilt that someone will carry as a result of this type of doctrine. Maybe I just didn't believe enough. False doctrine always creates false guilt. False doctrine always creates false guilt. That's one of the problems with legalism. When you make up all these rules and these regulations, it takes the joy out of knowing Jesus out of your life. The Bible says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. These confessionalists say that it's just the way you talk and you'll get it. I claim that I have a Ferrari and I manifest that through my profession. My profession leads to my possession. The problem with this is it makes God a genie. And all of a sudden, God is serving me and my needs, my whims, rather than me serving him. What about the verse in First Corinthians 5.19 that says, those who suffer according to the will of God. Suffering is sometimes under the banner of God himself. And then there are the dispensationalists. The dispensationalists are those people who say that the gifts of healing were only for the New Testament times. They're no longer around anymore. Don't bother looking for these gifts anymore. It was great back in those days and necessary to build the church. But I have a problem with this view because in Hebrews 13.8 it says this. It says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe that his teachings and the teachings of the disciples... Tell us that today is a day of healing, that we can look to God for a healing as to whatever it is that ails us. And then there are the rationalists. And the rationalists, these are the people who say it's just all in your mind. If you're ill, it's because you think you're ill. Just deny it and you'll be fine. This is the Christian science cult among others. Just deny that it's happening and it will go away. But here's James. Who is James in all of this? Well, James is a realist. James is a realist, and he recognizes two facts. One, the fact that God is still a healer and does heal. And he does heal, but not everybody gets healed, and he knows this. This is a fact of life. God does heal people today, but two, he doesn't heal everybody. And I think that life is an example of that. So what does James say to do when you're sick? You should call the elders of the church. First Peter five, Acts chapter 20, Titus two, tells of the structure of the church, and James says you call the spiritual leaders of your church to pray for you. These guys aren't professional healers who go around holy healing meetings. These are your brothers and sisters Who hold positions of responsibility in the local church, and they are the ones who are called upon to go and to pray over you. An example of this in scripture is Jesus. If anyone had the right to hold mass meetings, he could have, but in the New Testament, healing for him was a private matter. It says that we should call the elders. Who's doing the calling? The sick person is to call the elders. James is talking about a house call. If you're so sick that you can't get out of bed, you call the spiritual leaders to come to your house and you ask them to pray for you. I've had people here at the bridge who have been indignant with me. And the indignance comes from the fact that they went through a bout of sickness of which I was unaware. And then they let me know that, do you know I was sick? And I'm like, no, I didn't know you were sick. Yeah, I couldn't get out of bed for two weeks. And I said, did you tell anyone? Well, no. I said, well, I'm sorry, because I wouldn't know unless you've told me. And if there's an expectation related to healing and the praying for, you got to let me know. you got to let us know. you got to let the church know. And so that indignance is sort of unjustified. Who does the calling? James says, he who is sick is to call the elders. It implies support for belonging to a local church, by the way. Every Christian needs to identify themselves to a particular body of believers. You might ask, why? Well, one good reason is that when you get sick, you know who you can call on you know that the church is set up in such a way that they can respond to you when you call, when you need that prayer. The sick person is to take the initiative as best they can. So call for the elders of the church to pray over them. The person is probably in bed, probably infirmed in one form or another, so they are prayed over. It's a serious illness. And we are to anoint that person with oil. Now, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, like many symbols in Scripture. When we baptize with water, water is a symbol of the burial. When we take communion, the juice is a symbol of the blood that was shed by Jesus Christ. And all through Scripture, oil is used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And the emphasis here is the anointing. It was a symbolic value of the Holy Spirit. So when a person who is considered an elder, a leader, goes and prays over someone who is sick, they bring oil and they just simply apply the oil to the forehead of the individual and pray a prayer of healing. And what the invitation is, and it's symbolic to this, is that the Holy Spirit will meet that person right where they are. And we know that it's the Holy Spirit that administers the will of God. And so Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit are with you in that moment as you pray and we are looking for the almighty power of God, the Holy Spirit, to be made manifest in the life of this individual. Remember when Jesus went to the blind person? He spit into the dirt, he made mud cakes, and he put them on the man's eyes. Nobody believes that the mud itself had some sort of creative, healing power. But it was simply an aid to faith that Jesus used for the guy who was coming and believing for that healing. It was the faith that healed him. It wasn't the mud packs on the eyes, and the emphasis is on the power of prayer, not the power of the oil. It was just a symbol to be used. In the name of the Lord, James says. In the name of the Lord, God is the healer. Not you, not me, not any elder who prays over you, God is the healer. And what are the results? And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If he has sinned or she has sinned, they will be forgiven. And the Bible says, when I'm hurting emotionally, I ought to pray. When I'm hurting physically and when I've got a major illness, I call for the spiritual leaders of the church to pray And then, thirdly, I am to call upon and/or to call upon God and to pray when I'm hurting spiritually. He says, "Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other, so that you may be healed." If someone comes to me and says to me, "Pastor Brian, I just don't feel close to God." Pastor Brian, I it's been a long time since God and I have connected. Pastor Brian, I'm, I'm distraught, and I, and I don't even know whether to believe in God anymore. And I, and I hear these things. And I appreciate the confession. And I appreciate knowing the position that your heart is in. And James is saying, when you are in this position, you are to pray. He says, therefore, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other, so that you may be healed. God hasn't moved. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not, in a flighty way, love you and then not love you. God does not change like man changes. God is the same, always. His disposition is the same, always. And if you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you've, you've invited Jesus into your life, you might have the ups and downs. You might have the highs and lows. You might be distressed, or you might be absolutely celebrating as to how life is presenting itself to you. But God doesn't change. He doesn't move. He is not whimsical. He's not given to emotion or feelings by way of changing his nature, he is the same always towards you. Always. Spirituality is the position of your heart. It's the place that you are. And when James is talking about confessing sin, he's saying, bring before the Lord where there has been a break between you and God. You're angry with God because he didn't heal someone. You're angry with God because you've financially lost something. You're angry with God because life didn't work out the way you had thought that it should. Job, who was a man who was such a good man, but at the end of the book of Job, you see where even he experienced a disconnect with God and had to confess before God Almighty, where that disconnect became real. And so every single one of us, as we walk through in this personal relationship with Jesus Christ, come to places where we are hurting spiritually. And we are to confess to the people who we we walk through life with, even in our life groups or otherwise, we are to confess it and say, you need to pray for me, because right now, I'm feeling adrift. I'm feeling a bit backslidden. I'm feeling a bit bit outside of God's blessing. Again, again, God hasn't moved. And what's required is a confession. What's required is repentance. What's required is you and I acknowledging that That somehow life has happened to us and we've reacted to it in a way where where something has gotten between us and God. And God wants you to have a faith that is resilient. In fact, James starts his entire book dealing with the subject of faith and how it's built. And how perseverance and faith in the midst of hard times in life happens. And God is faithful to build that faith within you. So emotionally, physically, spiritually, God wants to heal us. Here's another question that I want to answer today. Who could pray? Who can pray? Some people think you have to be this spiritual giant to pray. To get answers to your prayer. I could never pray for someone and see them healed, you might say. I could never pray and see a financial miracle. Many Christians, they feel insecure. But James uses Elijah as an illustration, and he says, Elijah is a human being just like you. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain and produced the crops. And James is saying, listen, this human being, this is the guy who stood on a mountain and represented God, while many other people represented Baal, a false god. And he did this incredible, he was used of God in a mighty way on this mountaintop related to the issue of who is God and who should we be worshiping. And Elijah was used mightily of God in that moment. But then you see, just after that, him running from a woman who was after him. And you see him hiding out, and you see him whining to God. You see him crying out before God as to the injustice that he was experiencing. I was that guy, and now I'm this guy. A high and a low. And James is saying, look, Elijah was a human being just like us, and his prayer for rain and the holding back of rain was was what really is amazing, but it was of God. And he says, Elijah, you just like Elijah can pray and you can see mighty things come to pass. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things in prayer. Now, finally, I'm going to finish with this last point, and that is, how can I pray effectively? I want to review four conditions for prayer and praying effectively. The first thing we must do is we must ask. That sounds simple, but a lot of our prayers, we never ask for anything. I love that Maureen started the service today asking for something. It was a prayer. She said, we have prayed. I am praying, she said. I am praying that you would see the love of God today. I'm praying that you would experience the love of God today. She was very specific. And and I believe that God has revealed his love to you and I today. He is very faithful to do such things. But we must ask. We must ask. And we must be specific. In James 4, 2, it says, you do not have because you do not ask. Throw away all the cliches. I love hearing new Christians pray, praying with their simple vernacular, praying with their simple language. Not, O thou mightiest God, in whom I have found my, my, my transformation and my sanctification in justification. Oh God, you are so spectacular and majestic. No. It's just simple, like, God, I'm not sure exactly what or how to pray in this moment, but I'm feeling my brother, and I'm feeling my sister. They're hurting. I just pray, God, that you would meet them at the point of their need. In Jesus' name, amen. All we have to do is ask. Secondly, we must have the right motive. James says when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. If you're going to ask God in prayer, make sure that your motives are right, not for selfishness, but for a genuine reason, for the glory of God. The third aspect or condition to prayers that get answered is a clean life. He says the prayers of a righteous person is powerful and effective. In James 5:16, if you are someone who has Jesus in your heart, you are a righteous person. You are a righteous person. What you've done if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is you have placed a belief in what he did on the cross. And you believe that he died for you at Calvary. And that he bore all of your sins and all of your brokenness, not just in the past, but in the future and in the present tense. And you believe that the blood that flowed from Calvary cleanses you from all unrighteousness. In fact, the Bible tells us that when God looks from heaven, he does not look at you in your humanity. He looks at you through the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. God sees you in faith, By way of Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. But he sees you. Not. 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 In your thievery. Not in your lying. Not in. The dozen other ways that. You maybe have been less than. Jesus died for all of that. And. What God sees you, he sees you through Jesus Christ. So this issue of cleanliness or this issue of being clean is not being perfect, but rather being a person who takes what is broken in you, brings it before the Lord, confesses something like this. Lord, who am I to come to you? Who am I to come to you? I confess to you that my humanity has gotten the best of me this week. So I lay that out before you. And I ask you for forgiveness. And I ask you for your strength. And I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that in and of myself, I can't, but with Jesus, I can. Thank you for saving me through the work of Jesus. So I stand before you, not as a perfect person, but I stand before you as someone who has been saved by the blood and the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And right now, on behalf of my brother and on behalf of my sister, I ask you to undertake, I ask you to heal. I ask you to meet them at their point of need and I do this I do this in Jesus name in Jesus name amen that's the prayer of a clean heart not a perfect heart a clean heart finally and James says in Chapter 1, verse 6, we started with this. We're to ask in faith. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. So, Father, we come before you as a people who have been on a journey in this book of James. And we're so grateful for this unbelievable man of God, this person who... hits us where it hurts, but also brings about a very clear picture of what you will for us. Wisdom, all throughout this beautiful book, wisdom for life and living. And Today, you've given us wisdom related to our prayerfulness. I pray, Father God, that we would not be slack in communicating with you. I pray that Satan would gain no foothold by making us feel insecure about coming to you. I pray that there would be no shame as we come before you in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, it's in his merit, he empowers, he heals. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.